Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the all-new Dueling Decades, the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. I am Mark James, and this week we marvel at the miraculous May Duel where I will be competing with May of 1984 alongside the other duelers in the decades they will be fighting for. First off, swinging back to the 70s, say hello to Man Crush. What's up, everyone? We're live again. Uh, Yep, May 1974. And do us a favor. We didn't ask this the last time. We never do. Uh, Please, even though it's redundant and everyone says it, please like subscribe and comment if you haven't already even if you just got here just like it anyway uh the more we get the more views we get the more people are coming to the chat so please do that but yeah i got may 1974 way to bring it also joining us on the panel and bringing the 411 from the 90s it's the professor drew zachman what's up everybody it is me drew from songs gone wrong and i am talking about may of 1994, which is actually when I peaked, and it's all been downhill ever since. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. Back behind the bench this week is the man who is battling the Burger King and the King of Donaire for the title of the one true king. He is the media king of the North. All rise and welcome Judge Joe Finley. Are we ready to do this, guys? Yes, sir. Let's have a fun game. I'm going to keep it fair. Keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Listen, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, so this week the coin toss will be between myself and Drew Zachman. Drew, you got the honors this week. Why don't you call it? I'm going to, well, what are we, what are we uh, tossing off today? All right. Well, I'm going to be tossing off. I noticed somebody said I had the lovemaking lights on and seeing as it's a desk (laughs) where I sit by myself. You're right. Um, (laughs) But today I wanted to really bring the media King of the North. Last couple of times I've judged, I used a digital app and I didn't want to play that this time. So I went full Canadian and I brought a toonie to the game. Toonie. All right. All right, so the queen's head, because, you know, is heads. The polar bear is tails, because we fucking hate ourselves. All right. (laughs) Okay, guys, so you're going to call it in the air, right? Yeah, I'm totally going polar bear on this one. Polar bear, okay. 
Her Majesty. Heads it is. Uh, <laughs> fucking uh, royalty. That means I take control of the board and I get to select our very first category. All right, gentlemen. You know what? Uh, let's start off with the movies round. Oh, wow. All right. So I am so excited. I have the opportunity to select this film and talk about it. You know, we're just going to get it out of the way first. If Airplane, Friday the 13th, and Grease are the Man Crush 3, this movie is definitely one of my top three growing up. So I wanted a little retro perspective on it, so I dug up an original review and a first impression of the film. So let's go over to the Miami Herald, May 9th, 1984, for a review with the headline that says, Breakin', a happy streetwise musical. Breakin' is the first of what is likely to be a wave of movies about breakdancing in its several permutations. Lockin', poppin', hip-hop, often to the narration of a DJ. <laughs> and though Breakin' follows the flash dance formula as if it was blazoned in concrete and worked from a script that would make a 12-year-old snicker, it's exuberant and it's lighthearted. That works. For proper enjoyment, what you have to do is ignore the Flashdance-inspired story, which involves a series of painfully contrived plots developed when street dancers are repeatedly frustrated at the hands of Los Angeles street dance establishment. It is sufficient to treat the story as kind of filler in between the appearances of the men known as Shabadoo and Bugaloo Shrimp. When they are on the screen dancing, Breakin has a special joy to it. And I couldn't agree more with that. Lucinda Dickey, an actress who can dance, she's an adequate foil for Shabadoo and Bugaloo, but it is they who can do the floor spins and the choreographed robot walks. A Bugaloo Chambers is a wonderful comic touch as well. Uh, he is in near constant motion throughout the picture, and many of his best moves are used as throwaways instead of actual dialogue or punchlines. There's a splendid spirit and presence on the screen. Though Breakin assumes a world which no one takes breakdancing seriously, one suspects that the filmmakers were last to get the word. If you can sit through this one without fighting back the urge to dance in the aisles, it's time for a checkup. So that's what they were originally saying about Breakin, and I kind of agree with them. That's why I always like the film. If you look at it, these are just a, a ragtag group of guys who they have nothing in life except their art, their dance. Kelly, on the other hand, she has absolutely everything, and she chooses to dance because it is just their passion. So with its May release date strategically placed in May of 1984 by Canon, Breakin' was the first of the theaters, beating the uh, Harry Belafonte-produced Beat Street by a whole month and uh, starting off the breakdancing craze of the 80s. So guys, it's Breakin', it's May 4th, 1984. It's a good choice. All right, Drew Zachman, over to you. What do you have for the movies round? All right, so I had May of 1994, as I stated previously. Uh, so this one was actually based on a, a TV show from the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, it was a Western comedy. It was, I actually thought it was pretty enjoyable to watch. I remember the first time I watched it, which wasn't actually until it came out on VHS, but I always thought it was a fun movie. Now, if you like Mel Gibson, uh, then you probably like this movie, uh, but you probably hate everybody else if you like Mel Gibson. 
but this flick starred Mel, Jodie Foster, and James Gardner, who played the original title character in the TV series. And that title, in case you haven't figured it out already, is Maverick. And honestly, I love this movie. It's just like a fun flick to watch. It's about Maverick, who's a card player and con artist who is trying to collect money to enter a high-stakes poker game. And this movie basically kind of follows him along his adventures, or I guess misadventures. Uh, and uh, Alfred Molina's in it too. James Coburn's in it. So a pretty good cast in this one. One thing I did not know was that Randy Newman actually did the music for this movie. I had no idea about that. Had I known that ahead of time, I probably would have never watched it. But I'm glad I didn't know because I watched it and I like it. So now I can actually give it a pass. Um it had a budget back then of $75 million, and it raked in $183 million, uh, or Nick, uh, in 2021 dollars, that equates to about 19.3 trillion yen. So I think uh, it's a pretty good, pretty good haul. And uh, the film was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Costume Design. So I am going with Brett Maverick, which came out in May of 1994, May 20th, 1994, to be precise. Man, I wish uh, Bo Beecraft was here because if you listen to the episode a year ago when we had Robert Tepper on, yeah, I remember that fantastic one. Fantastic, yeah. Randy Newman. That was that cop show he was talking about. Yeah, cop yeah, rock. Yeah. Cop rock. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking genius. That was hilarious. I I was driving home. I I'm pretty sure a little pee came out when that came on. I was <laughs> cracking up the whole ride. That's home. just because you're getting old. That well, that too. To do with laughing. That too. All right, man, crush. <laughs> what did you bring for the movies round? All right, so let's go to May 24th of 1974. And let me just say this. Like, the 70s are a different time for cinema. It's not a bad thing at all, but you have these pockets during the decade where the films are focused on one type of a movie or another. And a few months ago, uh, I had March of 1977, back in March, obviously. And I came to bat with uh, Airplane 77. And that was right in the midst of all the disaster films and the whole disaster film craze. But my my personal favorite period during the 70s, it has to be like pre-1975. You literally have scores of exploitation movies during this period. If you could think of anything to exploit, there, just exploit it. I mean, there wasn't just one movie for that exploit. There would be a series of movies for that exploit. And I only bring this up because selecting a movie right here was extremely difficult for me because I had 1974. Not because there were a lack of movies, but because the amount of schlock was really hard to pass up. And Mike watched the movie today. I was going to pick this movie called The Teacher, about a teacher who seduces one of her students. I mean, I couldn't find a good <laughs> copy of it. Otherwise, I probably would have picked that. Uh, with that being said, I went with a different type of popular movie of this time period, and that was road movies. So you had uh, like five easy pieces with uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, Tulane Blacktop, Duel, The Getaway, Slither. Uh, Dirty Mary, uh, Crazy Larry, which I could have picked here because it was released in uh, May of 74, Gone in 60 Seconds. And honestly, there's dozens of movies and that I'm leaving out here. That being said, I did go with a road film here at the box office. This one brought in $22 million at the gate in 1974. And Drew, you'll like this one. It brought in 121 or $120 million in 2021. It's good to hear. No yen. We're going all U.S. <laughs> uh, so uh, this one, it actually did get considered for uh, an Oscar. It had some Oscar buzz around it. You had a young Jeff Bridges being nominated for best actor in a sporting role. Unfortunately, uh, he lost out to Robert, (laughs) Robert De Niro for Godfather two. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, Coincidentally, this movie right here, it was supposed to be directed by Clint Eastwood, 
But they ended up going with a virgin director on this one, the writer of the film, Michael Cimino, who went on to write and direct Deer Hunter. So not too shabby on that one. Obviously, like I mentioned, Clint Eastwood. So he stars in this as well. Uh, it's probably the most relaxed role of Clint Eastwood that I've ever seen in my life. He's still got that classic Eastwood like stoicism, which you expect from him. But every time you think that he's just going to bitch slap somebody for saying something, he doesn't. Uh, but don't worry. He still throws down fisticuffs in this movie. He's not Harry Callahan, but you know, here's the other thing. Like what seventies movie is not complete without George Kennedy. And I think this is the third time I've picked a seventies movie where George Kennedy's in it. That, of course, airplane 77, like I mentioned before, earthquake and this one, and I think there might've been one more, but I just can't remember anymore. Uh, so if you're in the mood for anti-heroes, car chases, bank heists, cross-dressing, big guns, fist fights, <laughs> rural Montana, pistachio ice cream cones, midnights at the drive-in, double crosses, guys named Red, unexpected <laughs> endings, and a very, very early Gary Busey, and stories that would never, ever take place with the inception of the interwebs and go out and pick yourself a copy of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And I mentioned that, that part about the internet. I don't want to give away spoilers if you want to go watch this, but if they had the internet, there would be no story. <laughs> It would be over in like five minutes. Be like, oh, that's where it is? Oh, done. But it's 1974. Shit's simpler. <laughs> All right, let's throw it up to Judge Joe Finley for the ruling on the movies round. Oh, man, it's a tough one. Uh, very different movies being kind of brought to me and not one that was like a real like punch in the face, like huge movie. Uh, Maverick was a fun movie i remember going to see it back in the day uh good cast it was just that it's that fun version of uh mel gibson that you know often gets overshadowed <laughs> by the less fun version of mel gibson he was so happy back he was then. so happy back then everybody seemed cool uh that but, we knew but until man, he took his kid it's uh it, it's good but it's just i i don't know like of all the the mel gibson joints as it were i don't know if it's the one that gets me the most excited uh and then you have thunderbolt and lightfoot uh there's a lot of things in there i think where you may have lost me man crush is when you said so if you're looking for and in your list you included rural montana who the fuck's looking for rural montana <laughs> it's a road it's a road film it's a, dude. no where i know you're gonna go i know it's just very funny it's like if you're looking for something probably rural montana hey, the right scenery ladies is amazing it's amazing. <laughs> it's, Lakes, mountains. Hey, I've been to Montana. I've been through Montana more have you Really? I haven't. <laughs> uh, I, I went through a bunch of states very quickly while I slept in the back of my grandparents' uh, van. But that's neither here nor there. I have to go with the one, though, that to me is the most indicative of its decade in this scenario. As, like, one doesn't really, like, just jump out to me. I gotta go with Breakin'. It's the, it is the one that is the... It screams 80s, whereas like Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, it's like, does it like it's obviously 70s, but does it scream 70s? Does the other one, does Maverick scream 90s? When was the last time you saw a road film? Well, I've seen plenty <laughs> of road films. <laughs> Fast and Furious doesn't count. Mm. Sure, don't shit me, does. Don't make me puke. But... That's a short road, bro. <laughs> oh, short. <laughs> the 10th or the, what, the ninth one's coming out. I live my life. What is a quarter it? mile at a time. Seconds, a quarter mile at a time. 
for those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. You did that in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. <laughs> now you've got, instead of Vin Diesel, you've got uh, Clint Eastwood going, I live my life 275 miles at a time. Get off my lawn. <laughs> That's right. I bring the impressions, too. It's only a matter of time before Clint actually shows up in the Fast and Furious. I mean, his son's in it, for crying out loud. Yeah. He might just wander on stage. He might. Let's hope. How old is he now? Like 90? He's he's spry. He's a spry 90-something, I think. All right, guys. Well, I'm so excited I won that round. I pick up a point. I take control of the board. You know what? This might be the first thing Breakin' ever won. So, you know, since we're talking about movies, let's go to the news round. Yo, so for my news, we're going to go to an article that was in newspapers across the country the first week of May 1984. It was announcing a special preview of an upcoming film. The headline read, Indiana Jones Helping Kids. Movie producer George Lucas and director Steven Spielberg are previewing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the Raiders of the Lost Ark sequel, in 19 cities on the eve of its May 23rd opening. The screenings will benefit a variety of causes involving children's diseases and charities. It's George and Steve's way of giving back to the kids, said a Lucasfilm spokesperson who added that none of the stars are actually expected to appear at any of the benefits. Now, the article does say that it's a sequel, but the movie, of course, is actually a prequel, having taken place the year before Indy's squabble with all those Nazis. So it's the debut of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which would get its worldwide release on May 23rd, 1984. But the night before, they held a special charity preview. And this is a tradition that would actually carry carry on. And they continue raising money for children's charities well into when they did all the new Star Wars movies as well. So Temple of Doom would go on to sell an estimated 53.5 million tickets in the United States. So how do you compare that to today? I just couldn't figure it out. So I wanted to compare something else from 1984 to kind of give you a little bit of perspective on just how popular Indiana Jones was at the time. So I compared it to the upcoming 1984 presidential election. So Indiana Jones sold 53.5 million tickets. Now, Walter Mondale, the Democratic nominee, only got 37.5 million votes. Now, of course, Ronald Reagan won this election in the most lopsided election we've ever had with 54.5 million votes. So Indiana Jones actually almost could have beaten Ronald Reagan for president is basically what it boils down to. (laughs) That's how popular Indiana Jones. That's a lot of tickets sold. Almost as many votes as Ronald Reagan got for for president and in case you're wondering the chilled monkey brains those were actually made from custard and raspberry sauce hey it's indiana jones and the temple of doom it is an absolutely fantastic film it is a gem the fact that they went out there and raised money for kids that's kind of cool too so that's what i got from my news story raising money for kids go indie i like how you shit on mondale right after he died (laughs) (laughs) I think I was just like last week. Way to go. I'll hail Vice President short round. <laughs> I would totally vote for Indiana Jones. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, he was a president. Yeah, that's right. He, uh, uh, that's true. See? Get off my plate. Yeah. Man, 
that would explain a lot of the things in that in that movie if it really was Indiana Jones. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, what did you bring for the news round? So for mine, uh, I'm going with it's kind of it's kind of a big deal. Uh, but for the first time in the history of South Africa, a black leader was elected as the head of state. So the great Nelson Mandela, uh, after serving. <laughs> what? Uh, this is like the 17th time you've brought Nelson Mandela. <laughs> <laughs> Broken record Drew Zachman. I'm changing his nickname. I've only no, I've only used Nelson Mandela once before, like- I think. No, like four times, four times. No, (laughs) it's what, you know what? It's a big deal. The guy did a lot and you know what? Next time I'm on, I'm going to fucking bring him up again. (laughs) I don't don't even, I don't even care. I'm going to find, I'm like looking like his archives, like the Nelson Mandela archives and whatever, like it can, it can be the week experience. I don't care. I will find something he did that week in like 1973. He was probably sitting in a jail cell back then, but I will find out what he did in that jail cell and I will fucking bring it in for my news round. How about that? I stan Nelson. All right. What's the, what's the difference from what you're doing now? (laughs) I have, I don't think I've, I've, I haven't had the seventies yet. I think that's probably why. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) whatever. He was, he was elected as the president of South Africa, whatever. Next. <laughs> Just go back to the last episode where you talked about it. You can hear all the details. No, that was I think that was probably like that was a while ago. I think it wasn't that recent. I don't. Know. He, won a, like he won a your, Nobel Peace Prize. Did you, ever, did you ever win a Nobel Peace is, Prize? You probably brought that one up. It's like your Nelson Mandela was like the Princess Die of 2019 for us, <laughs> where it just kept coming up. I was like, God, just retire already. Yeah, 2019, man, we had so many Princess Die picks come up. That, that I got yelled at one time. <laughs> yeah, I was like, too much. No, that's, that's a loss. <laughs> oh, fantastic. But it is it is worth bringing up Nelson Mandela. I mean, he is somebody that uh, deserves a lot of respect. So He only fought racism. Yeah. You know, you know no big deal. All, no. Helped, uh, you know, raise a lot of money yeah, to did combat a great poverty job. And, and, and AIDS. <laughs> hey. <laughs> He tried. He tried. Right. I go. I'm all the love for him for trying. Trying to fight poverty and HIV and AIDS through his foundation. So you know, I give Mark props for that because that usually that's something that I would be like, dude. And Mark did it. <laughs> <laughs> You're growing on me, man crush. What can I say? <laughs> all right, man crush. What did you bring for the news round? All right, well, I am going to the 70s, so let's go uh, May 2nd, 1974. And uh, What did Nelson do in his jail cell that day? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't look at, I didn't look that one up, but however, in May 1974, it's, it's plagued with countless articles about Watergate and Richard Nixon. However, like those sto- that's all Drew Zachman right there. It's not for me. <laughs> so I kept digging through newspapers.com, and I stumbled on a bunch of stories about the World Football League. And if you weren't aware, the World Football League was one of the first startups to challenge the NFL's reign at the time. Now, when it was all said and done, the World Football League was a colossal failure. It was a dumpster fire of extraordinary proportions. If no one's done a documentary about it yet, they should certainly look into it. But I'm not going to dive too deep into the World Football League. But I will say that it was so bad that teams moved their franchises to new cities during the season. Like not just one, like multiple teams did that. And there was an owner that was financing his team and paying the payroll by selling cocaine 
and he got arrested afterwards and all the shit. So there's all kinds of gems that come out of that story. However, I'm going to go with something that has a bit more legs here. Uh, Dave, you'll like that one. So here's a quick summary of an article uh, that was titled new rules of blessing by Larry Stevenson. And he says, without a single down taking place as of yet, the world football league has already experienced some alleged theft at the hands of the national football league. The world football league hollered robbery yesterday, claiming that the most, most of the new innovations unwrapped by the NFL were indeed heisted from the world football league's rule book that was released the month prior. Even though they, they clearly stole some of these changes from the world football league. And we'll get into those in a second. Everyone, Everyone, including the author of this article, because I read different articles about how boring the NFL was at the time. The, everyone was super pumped that the NFL was starting these rule changes. Apparently, during this period in the early 70s, the NFL product was just stagnant. Like everyone was like, what the fuck? Like, what are we doing? There were games that ended in ties. The goalposts were literally on the field of play. There were hardly any kick returns because kickers were booting the ball into the stands from the 40-yard line. And the teams that were playing, they were playing like this conservative midfield game that was predictable. Larry Stevenson himself in this article, he's quoted as saying this. Anytime my mother can sit in front of a television and accurately predict what the play coming up is. She might have been watching Adam Gase. I don't know. But she said um, the next play coming up in the Super Bowl, it's time for them to go back to the drawing board. And that is exactly what they did because they stole the following rules from the World Football League. One. There's no more ties. Kissing your sister is a thing of the past. They're introducing the sudden death rule still being utilized. Uh, The second one, the goalposts are now being moved off the field. They're being moved to the back of the end zone, still being used. Now, this one's important. Um, If you miss a field goal outside of the 20 yard line, the opposing team will get the ball at the yard line, like your yard line, like wherever it happens to be. At the time, if you missed a field goal over 20 yards, it just defaulted to the 20-yard line, the opposing team's 20-yard line. So that was pretty shitty. Like, people were just trying to bang 60-yard field goals, and they'd be like, oh, it's almost like a punt. Take the ball, you're 20. Uh, the only thing that they've changed on that now, it's from the spot of the kick, but basically it's the same thing. Uh, and kickoffs, they move those back five yards, so they're now going to be taking place at the 35-yard line instead of the 40 So no more kicking the ball into the stands, which translates into more kick returns, which makes the game more exciting. And they're still doing that. So I give you some legs with that one. The NFL robs the World Football League and introduces some new rules. And they're still around doing pretty damn well. Wow. All right, Judge Joe Finley, what is your verdict on the news round? Well, first off, Drew, I I love the... Uh, or I feel for you only because I've been in the same situation. I don't think that people who don't do this show understand, uh, that it's tough sometimes. A, we don't all, if we're not on a string of episodes, we don't always catch everything that's been going on and similar years or close years, uh, will come up and somebody will be in the news for a long time. OJ was a big thing for this. Princess Di was a big thing for this. I got yelled at for uh, Celine Dion. I got yelled at for a lot of things, but that's neither here. <laughs> I think I, I used to uh, go with Bill Clinton. I feel like I, I, I've used Bill a few times. Yeah. Yeah. So Bill, Bill and Nelson, I think are my He's two guys. Lovely man. <laughs> yes. Now, if you can find a story yeah. with Bill Between the two of them. and Nelson Mandela together, mm. instant win. Uh, yeah, work on synergy. It. I'll just keep hitting the points button until I run out. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I feel for you. I get it. 
but yeah, it's it, it is what it is. Uh, and then uh, Mark, the Indiana Jones thing, it's cool. Uh, I not as meaty as a, of a news story. It's just hey, we raise money. That's yeah. cool. I'm happy they raise money. Don't get me wrong, but uh, <laughs> like I, it's it's better than like. Uh, you know, uh, Harrison Ford kicks a sick child in the nuts and then pushes short round. It is better than that. <laughs> calls him that. a douchebag. But uh, so it's it's much better, but it it's fine. It's just movie comes out roughly on schedule and kids get money. Uh, but I'm going to go with. Uh, <laughs> it's a great summary. It is. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Man Crush on this one because uh, I just recently actually watched that uh, documentary about the XFL uh, where basically a lot of the same things were happening where the NFL nabbed a lot of ideas. Basically, Without the uh, the World Football League, the XFL, other places like that, uh, the NFL wouldn't be the NFL that it is today. They've stolen a lot of stuff from them at the expense of these smaller leagues. So I give it to Nick. And I didn't bring this up in this because I didn't think anybody gave a shit because who cares about millionaires? But this is actually what got players to get paid. Yeah, because they were getting paid nothing at the time. And when the World Football League came around, they were throwing out these big contracts to like guys like Larry Zonka at the end of their careers. And shit just got wild after that. So the NFL had to do the same thing. Well done. All, All right, right, man, crush. You picked up a point. You tie up this game. You take control of the board. Where are we going next, man? All right, let's see if I do this right, because with live, it's a little bit different. But let's go television. You tell me when to go. Yeah, you go ahead. <laughs> All right, so let's go May 6, 1974. And we've covered some like television network snafus on the show before. And you could file this one with the rest of those. So this show it actually premiered in March of 1973 on CBS. And it was initially a ratings juggernaut. Uh, CBS aired this game show at 9.30 in the morning every day, and it was absolutely destroying the competition at the time. So at the same time, NBC was looking for a way to get back into the ratings game with their own game show, Jeopardy. And for years, Jeopardy was like one of the most watched game shows on television, but the ratings were starting to dip. So in December of 1973, NBC moved Jeopardy from their typical noon slot, where it had been for years, to a new time slot. 9 30 a.m so with all the excitement of the move to 9 30 jeopardy started to kill cbs's game show in that 9 30 slot and after three months of their rating sagging cbs just decided to cancel the show altogether because that you know it's only three months eh, if i could get rid of it which is hilarious because nbc canceled jeopardy in january of 1975 so it like you couldn't wait that out like you didn't know that was gonna happen uh, but it's just like a TV pick I had a couple months ago when I had Three's Company where ABC swooped right in and they they stole the show. On May 6th of 1974, on its new time slot at 2 p.m., Dick Clark hosts $10,000 Pyramid, or Pyramid as I like to call it because it's gone from $10,000 to $20,000 to $25,000 to $50,000. And now it's a $100,000 Pyramid. And over the years... It's it's crazy. It's gone all over the place. Like Pyramid, it switched from CBS to ABC, from ABC to syndication, back to CBS, then back to syndication, then to the Game Show Network, and now it's back on ABC again. So mark your calendars, because this one's got legs, Dave Schultz. 
May 26th is the season debut with Michael Strahan as the host now of the show. It Listen, this is a captivating show. Mike Ranger and I were at a podcast New York studios last night, and I told him I was going to pick Pyramid tonight. And we got stuck on a Pyramid rabbit hole, like for an hour straight, just watching these little clips of the show. If you've never watched a show before, it's basically there's two teams, both comprised of a celebrity and a contestant. And each round, one player gets to select from one of six categories. And one of the contestants has 30 seconds to convey clues to the other contestant about the whatever that item might be. And that contestant needs to guess as many as possible. It's simple. It's genius. And it's crack. Like if you watch one on YouTube, you just keep going. And the ones with Dick Clark are gold. We watched one last night where he was literally the, the lady said something as the buzzer sounded and he came running over and she thought she won. And he's like, nope, nope. So go watch that video. It's fantastic. Everyone's heart is in their stomachs at that point. Um, it's not quite as cool as Dueling Decade, but it is legit. Uh, but we got the premiere of Dick Clark's $10,000 pyramid on ABC. Wow. What's it going to be called this time? Like the four Bitcoin pyramid? <laughs> <laughs> one bitcoin yeah. it's gonna be uh dodge coin yeah yeah there we yeah go. the one the one doge coin rocket to the moon <laughs> <laughs> all right drew zachman what did you bring for the television round all right so um this one's this one was kind of a big deal i remember watching it uh but may 10th uh nbc aired the inauguration of newly elected leader nelson mandela <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would have given you this round without even hearing Mark. Oh, really? Damn it. I should have. I should have maybe researched that one more. But this one. Come so on now. That ain't even bullshit. That's horseshit. <laughs> what the hell was that? <laughs> this one's actually a little sad for me. Um, so it actually marked the end of a show that my dad and I love watching. Uh, we love watching it so much. We actually have the DVD set. I have it right here. I'm talking about the adventures of Briscoe County Jr. I love that show. Um, it only aired 27 episodes, uh, which is very short. But holy shit, those 27 uh, those episodes were glorious. Uh, the show starred the incomparable Bruce Campbell, who played the title character, who was a Harvard-educated lawyer who became a bounty hunter who was hired by a group of wealthy industrialists to track and capture the outlaw John Bly and his gang. Now, uh, yeah, the, the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. is so much fun. I mean, if you guys know Bruce Campbell, I mean, you know everything he does is pretty much amazing. Uh, and so this show actually came about thanks to Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, which obviously is an amazing movie. Uh, what happened was the executives at Fox looked back at some old shows and found like a lot of them fell into kind of two genres, Westerns and science fiction, uh, which gave them the idea to combine the two, which is what they did in Briscoe County. And they actually, uh, so kind of tying some things together here, uh, they actually used the old episodes of Maverick for inspiration on using humor in the genre for Briscoe County. So I give you the, the very last episode of Briscoe County Jr., High Treason Part 2, which aired on May 22nd, 1994, much to my chagrin. Good show. Check it out. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, that's a pretty cool show, man. Can't go wrong sure with Bruce Campbell. Nope. All right, guys. So for my television offerings, it's May 8th, 1984. We're going to settle in to watch a couple episodes of Happy Days. Now, this is a two-part episode called Passages. 
part one and part two, the 249th and 250th episode of Happy Days. Now, these two episodes, of course, serve as the series finale for the legendary TV show, although five more previously unaired episodes would air out of continuity later on NBC during the summer of 1984. So Happy Days was ranked in the top five Nielsen ratings for three straight years, peaking at number one for the 1976-77 season. But by 1984, the show had plummeted to number 63 in the ratings. Uh, The series finale was filmed at the famous Stage 19 Paramount Pictures Studios where they filmed Happy Days, the same stage believed to be haunted by Lucille Ball's wardrobe lady. In the series finale, Joni says yes when Chachi finally pops the question. Then the entire gang gets together one last time to prepare for the wedding. Fonzie becomes a dad, but not for the reason you think. He decides to adopt Danny, his little brother from the Big Brother Big Sisters program. Now, Potsy and Ralph are the only two characters from the original cast who didn't attend Joni and Chachi's wedding. Naturally, Fonzie was uh, Chachi's best man at the wedding. And in one kind of like final awkward moment for Happy Days, if there wasn't enough of those on the show already, in his toast to the newlyweds, Howard mentions that both of our children are married now, he says, completely forgetting about their oldest son, Chuck. Now, if you remember, Richie was married by phone in season eight after Ron Howard left the show. But, you know, they totally forgets about Chuck. What happened to him, man? So it's the series finale of Happy Days, May 1984. Just a landmark moment in television history. All right, Joe Finley, it is time for your ruling on the television round. What you got? Oh, man. Uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, Mark, right off the bat with... Uh, our dear friends at Happy Days. Uh, did you know there was a show where a guy actually jumped over a shark? And it was the best one! It was Happy Days. I know, man. Uh, just... That one loses me only because it it was such a fizzle at the end. It was such a weird... Like, nobody was there. It's like showing up late to a party and all the people you know from the party like it's a friend of a friend type thing and all the people you know have already gone home and now you're just stuck with all the like who are all these people that's what that one was and uh eh, sorry um what else do we got we got uh man crush and the ten thousand dollar pyramid uh great show tons of legs just like you said now it's a hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is uh it's a fun game i like a fun simple game show it's a good background thing to have on you know i like jeopardy and things where you you know you got to be smart and you got to have a skill set but it's also just fun to watch uh ones like that sometimes and then uh briscoe county jr another good one i love bruce campbell uh the creator behind the show like you said he did indiana jones he did what tales from the crypt he did all sorts of cool stuff um uh, I wasn't in love with that show. And again, it just kind of, it was on and it was gone. Um, ugh, it's close. I think I'm going to have to go with man crush and uh, the $10,000 pyramid. Uh, it's just cause it's still on the air. And I do love that kind of story when 
you know, something kind of gets crapped on by the networks because of low ratings. And then somebody has a little more faith and it comes in, scoops it up and uh, it becomes a big deal. So that's why I go there. All right, Man Crusher, you pick up another point and we're heading into our first two point round. You have control of the board. We have a couple of categories left. Where are we going? All right, so let's go. Let's do music. Let's do music. Let's finish up on hot products, which hardly ever happens. Everyone jams that in the beginning or in the middle. So let's finish up with hot products. But uh, let's go May 20th, 1974. And when I first drew May of 1974, I was actually very excited to look at what albums came out for the month. And I apologize, Joe, if I came out too quickly on that one. But it is what it is. We're going music. All right. Uh, there were several great albums that came out, but surprisingly, there was no juggernauts that spoke to me. And we've talked about this in the past. If something and music doesn't speak to you, how can you pick it? Uh, however, there were some solid singles that were released that month. And the single I decided to go with, it was released on May 20th. The thing is, when I think of this song, I think of George Michael. Uh, the rendition of this song, it's timeless. But I remember seeing old George do an epic version of this song, and that always stuck in my head. Uh, but in addition to going two times platinum in the United States, this particular song, it came off of an album that went number one in most places around the globe, the Billboard 200 in the U.S., the U.K. album charts, Canada, Australia, and it even hit number five on the Yugoslav album charts, so you know that it's good. Uh, that said, the single itself, it sold one million copies in the U.S. alone. Uh, and it would climb to number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1974. But it can never top John Denver's stranglehold at the top of the slot there with uh, Annie's song. So it, it only got to number two. However, the duet of this song with George Michael, which was released in 1991, that would basically hit number one everywhere in the world. Literally, like every country was number one, like Zimbabwe, like everywhere is number one. So as I like to say on this show. This one has legs, not to mention being immortalized during Live Aid with Sir Elton John playing on piano. Arguably one of the biggest pop duets of the time or of the 80s at that time. Uh, but speaking of collaborations, the chorus on this hit single, it includes Bruce Johnson and Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys. They originally planned on having Brian Wilson, Dusty Springfield and Cat Stevens, among others. But apparently they all sucked during the studio sessions and they were never used. And I, like, I guess everybody has a bad day, though, because that included Elton John. Uh, he allegedly he also was pretty terrible in the studio and he initially hated how the song sounded. The first time that they played him the rough cut of the song, he called it and I quote a load of shit and he almost tossed it out <laughs> as a demo track. So you want more legs, Dave Schultz? This one's for you. You want more legs? Matt Sorum, the drummer of Guns N' Roses for uh, Usual Illusion 1 and 2, he said that this song right here, huge influence behind the drums on mega hit November Rain and Don't Cry from those two albums and Estranged. So that's pretty good legs right there. You got double legs. I give you Sir Elton John's hit single, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. This is the first single that came off of his album, Caribou, May 1974. All right, Drew Zachman, what did you bring for the music round? Well, um, I actually have a whole album, not just one song, but uh, I'll tell you what else I have. Uh, I got more rhymes than I got gray hairs, and that's a lot because I got my share. Uh, now, there's a couple routes I could have gone with this pick here. Uh, 1994, on the whole, 
was an amazing year for music, and the month of May was no exception. Uh, I'm picking this album since I listened to the living shit out of it, and I still throw it on pretty often. Not only that, I think parts of it have also aged well, and it's actually hit me a little bit differently as an adult as opposed to a 14-year-old jackass like I was. But uh, this album barely made the criteria uh, as it was released on May 31st, 1994. Gave us four singles, two of which are are widely popular. Uh, Overall, these guys have just under 6 million monthly listeners on Spotify, and their most streamed song is actually off this album, having been streamed over 202 million times. And while I love that song, it is a little bit overplayed, but the video for that is insanely iconic. And that song I'm talking about, Sabotage, and the album I'm talking about is Ill Communication from our good friends from New York, the Beastie Boys. Now, this album's included in a book, A Thousand and One Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, and I would strongly agree with that. This album hit number one on the U.S. Billboard 200. Uh, this album's perfect. I mean, I I don't skip tracks on this one. It's so good. Uh, besides the big singles, right? Sabotage, uh, Sabotage and Sure Shot. Sure Shot, by the way, is amazing uh other singles root down get it together also great get it together is one of my favorites on the album b-boys and make with the freak freak such a great song as this flute loop uh, i mentioned earlier right uh this album hits a little differently as an adult and one track in particular is the update which i liked when i was younger but now it's 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 actually my favorite track on the album uh, so just do yourself a favor and give it a listen. Rest in peace, MCA. Also with rap, right? There's a lot of talk about, in, like in general, rap as, you know, the big picture here. There's a lot of talk about like, degrading women, things like that. But in Sure Shot, right? MCA says, I want to say a little something that's long overdue. The disrespect to women has got to be through. To all the mothers and sisters and wives and friends, I want to offer my love and respect till the end so these guys they stuck to their morals love the beasties also happy mother's day call your moms um but yeah so i'm going with ill communication from the beastie boys love that album the instrumentals on that are oh, just everything's good yeah it's fantastic start to finish not not yep. a bad second on the entire album all right, guys, so for my music selection, I have a, a single, not a, not a whole album. Much like Man Crush, I brought just one song, but it's a big one. On May 16th, 1984, Prince released his very first single with The Revolution, although Prince actually played all the instruments on this song himself. And for a song that has, like, no bass in it, it has one of the most unforgettable grooves of all time. The single was released a month ahead of its album and two months ahead of the major motion picture that it was written for. I give you a song that Rolling Stone lists at number 52 in its 500 greatest songs of all time. And it's the second highest song on that list from the entire 1980s next to The Message by Grandmaster Flash. It's my music selection. I give you When Doves Cry. Prince wrote the song at request of Purple Rain director... Albert Magnoli, who was actually looking for a song to serve for a specific scene in the movie. Lyrically, however, though, a Prince biographer has gone on to say that it was most likely inspired by Susan Moonsey. She was a member of Vanity Six that uh, Prince had an on-and-off-again affair with. So it was Prince's first Billboard Hot 100 single. It stayed at number one for five weeks, from July 7th, 84, all the way through August 4th of 84. 
and then it was ranked number one on the Hot 100 Billboard Year End Top 100 Singles of 1984. So Prince actually used his trusty L1 drum machine to create the unique percussion sound, which is actually now on display. So Man Crush, when he took your trip a couple of years ago to Paisley Park, you would have seen this. That's what he created when Doves Cry On. Uh, It was included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. The B-side was uh, the cult favorite 17 Days, which was originally intended for Apollonia 6's self-entitled album. But much like I told you a couple of weeks ago with Kiss, Prince wrote this one and then tried to give it away, then decided, nah, I'm just going to keep it for myself. So Purple Rain would go on to sell 13 million copies in the U.S., be one of the top 30 best-selling albums of all time. It's When Doves Cry, May 1984. All right, Joe Finley, let's hear your verdict on the music round. Oh, man. all This has been the best round so far. All really good picks. Um, Man Crush, I'm going to jump on you for a second because I feel like you were trying to confuse me a lot. You were showing me a lot of different decades. <laughs> You're like, hey, remember this song in, ni- in the 90s? It was great. It was a big hit in the 90s with somebody else. Oh, hey, in the 80s. It was this. And then you started playing off to a different judge. Dave's not judging. Daddy's judging. Joe, let, let me ask you a question. <laughs> if the song was written in 1974 yeah. and the guy re-released it with somebody else in 1991, yeah. the same song. Yeah. How's that? How, that confused you? No, I just, I just say you were hitting a lot of dates <laughs> and all that stuff all at once. But uh, you're doing a little dance for me. Uh, but it's a great pick. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to deny that by any means. Uh, but don't let the sun go down. I mean, I, I won't. Joe. Uh, but the, uh, <laughs> but uh, the other two picks, man, Prince, we hit a lot on here. We have Prince and princess die. Um, but there's a reason because Prince is a hit factory. And, uh, when doves cry was one of my like favorite songs growing up. I absolutely love that song. And one of my favorite albums growing up was ill communication. Uh, I hurt right now because I feel like I'm kicking a part of me in the soul if I pick one over the other. But I don't know, man. My The little dude in me, the little teenage dude is saying pick (laughs) ill communication and give Drew some points right now. So two points goes to Drew for 90s. All right. Yeah, I can't argue with that. The, the, the music still applies now, man. I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. Listen listen to that one song, The Update. So good. No, I listen to that album all the time, Drew, and I can't argue with that. Now, if you want to bring the Beastie Boys every time as a pick, I'm going to have a hard time dinging you for that one. I have to see if they wrote a song about Nelson Mandela. I don't know if they have. No, but Nelson Mandela wrote one about the Beastie Boys. It was weird. <laughs> when, he was, when he was in jail in 1972. Same rhyme Did scheme. Sinbad do that? Yeah. <laughs> Probably. All right, Drew Zachman, we're heading into the Hunt Products round. You have control of the board, so that means you get to decide if you want to go first or if you want to defer to one of us. I'll go first. I'll kick off Hot Products here. All right. Now, up until May of 1994, in order to view a movie at home, you had to either wait for it to come on TV or cable or have a box that gave you cable, which I didn't, but I, I 
know someone who did. Um, but either that or, you know, you could own the VHS or, you know, um, there's a couple other ways. But uh, usually like waiting for it to come out on TV or like VHS, they were the more popular options at that time. Uh, or you could do what I did and just wait till it comes on TV and then record it on VHS, which I think made up like 97% of our VHS collection. I feel like we also should have bought stock in TDK and Kodak in the late 80s. But May of 1994, that was all about to change. Two monster companies, Sony and Philips, you may have heard of them, decided to join forces for the betterment of humanity and develop a new kind of high-density medium. That's right, high-density medium. Uh, CDs are already out, but they weren't big enough to hold a high-quality resolution for an entire movie. Uh, although 14-year-old Drew was probably looking at 16-bit boobs back then, but whatever. Uh, anyway, Sony and Philips joined forces to work on this medium, some kind of disc for digital video, if you will, or perhaps a digital video disc that could be used. And this digital video disc would hold seven times the amount of data of a CD, 4.7 gig on one side compared to 680 megabytes for a CD. And uh, I'm talking about, of course, DVDs. And this would eventually be released in Japan on November 1st, 1996, and then the United States of America on March 24th, 1997. But what I'm talking about is the initial concepts of creating the DVD. So that happened in May of 1994. All right, guys. So I'll go next. Uh, my hot product is actually an album. And it's a compilation album. It was an album that was released May 8th of 1984. And it sold over 25 million copies globally. That's why I'm considering this one a definite hot product. So it, since it sold that many copies... That means that about one in every 312 people on the planet own a copy of this album. And it's an album that, that was ranked number 46 on Rolling Stone's list of 500 greatest albums of all time. And it's the album that first introduced me to this artist and why it's so special. I remember hearing it for the first time my junior year in high school in the student's lounge. And shortly thereafter, I went out and I purchased my very own copy of this and it's an album that's still in my my rotation today. It's the best-selling reggae album of all time. I Give You Legend by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Sold over 15 million copies in the United States. It's the 17th best-selling album overall in the United Kingdom. And it holds the distinction of being the second longest charting album in the history of Billboard magazine. Only surpassed by Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, all the hits are here on this one. This is love. No woman, no cry. You could be love. Three little birds. Buffalo soldier. Get up, stand up, stir it up. And then over on side two, we have one love. I shot the sheriff. Waiting in vain. Redemption song. Satisfy my soul. Exodus and jamming. Now, if you picked up the cassette version of this album, you got two extra songs. Punky reggae party and easy skanking. Not quite sure what that one was about. Island Record executive Dave Robertson, who compiled the tracks for the album, actually said that the track list was deliberately selected to appeal to a white audience. And some of the more political songs from Bob Marley were left off the track listing. 
So if you're looking for mass market appeal to secular progressive America, you don't go and include songs that invoke the collective guilt over the slave trade. So Legend was released in 2014, yet again in celebration of its 30th anniversary. Into the date of this episode, the world has been without Bob Marley for 40 years as he died of cancer on May 11th, wow. 1981. So I give you Legend by Bob Marley and the Whalers, just an absolutely epic uh, compilation album and uh, was a definite hot product for me all through high school. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the Hot Products round? All right, so let's go uh, May 1st, 1974. Uh, listen, when it comes to the early 70s, it's extremely difficult to find a hot product. Uh, and after doing the 70s for the last year, we figured out like where, what to explore to potentially find something. Yet sometimes you just come up empty. Uh, but this month I didn't, and I think both of my uh, competitors here did. So I'm gonna throw out my product here. So after I exhausted all of my, you know, my searching and everything, I decided to look at some magazines that came out for the month. And now I personally I wouldn't usually jump to magazines because you have to find something that stands out. And like, what exactly makes this magazine? more special than another magazine that came out that month. So after lengthy research, I decided to go with May 1974 issues of Playboy. And uh, obviously, like any Playboy magazine is going to hold a special place in somebody's heart. But what makes this particular Playboy, like what makes it stand out? And I'll be honest, initially... I was drawn to the cover because obviously it's smut. So who wouldn't, but the cover features a shot of a scantily clad got Marsha Kay. And she's wearing a very, very, very sheer bra. That's 110% see-through. I like, I wish I knew where this was being sold in 1974 because she might as well have been topless, you know, whatever. That's all well and good. Right. But special, Probably not that special. So then you open up the magazine and you look at the interviews. Okay. So we have an interview from the beloved Hammerin' Hank Aaron. Okay. That's cool. But like not uber special. Uh, keep in mind, we talked about this earlier. This was released at the height of Watergate. So you also have a Q&A with Woodward and Bernstein about how they broke the Watergate story. Again, it's pretty important. It's a super important event in U.S. history. But I'm sure everybody was covering this at the time. Then you get to Playmate of the Month, Marilyn Lang. And let me just sum this up with one word. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Marilyn is so stunning. She eventually becomes the Playmate of the Year for 1975. So this is where the extensive research comes in. If you Google, you guys are in the chat right now, Google an image of Marilyn Lang, May of 1974, and you will see what I saw. Marilyn is a very well-endowed woman. So well-endowed. She wore a 39F bra. F. 39F. So this I went through every Playmate of the Year in the existence of Playboy and Miss Lang has the largest breasts to ever hold that accolade at a 39F. I've seen bigger. So I give you 
Playboy, May of 1974, for the low price of $1, which is around $5.37 in 2021. How many yen? A lot. <laughs> Unbelievable. Painstaking research. Thank you for your sacrifice for this show. Oh, that was must have been tough research for Man Crush. <laughs> I just start in the 50s and go all the way to 2020. Let me research Playboy. Countless hours of, of research, of digging in Carpal Tunnel. To, yes. you know. It's like <laughs> Eric just said in the stat. He just said, stats don't lie. So there you go. All right, Joe Finley, we're going to go over to you. What is your verdict for the Hot Products round? Okay. Um, sorry, I I googled some images and now I'm. <laughs> He's uh, doing research. Yeah. No, I have uh, I have Marsha K in front of my face right now, but that's uh, neither here nor there. Let's just. Uh, oh, you didn't even get to Maryland. Oh, I, d- I did, but I went back just because oh. I, I I felt like the cover. I, I'm I'm judging based on cover right now. Joe, did you did you say you were looking at pictures of Marsha Clark? Oh, if only. <laughs> I did say I, I hope I said Marsha K, <laughs> but either way, hey, it's all it's all hot products, baby. But um, <laughs> anyways, I'm sorry. Uh, so we'll start with uh, Drew and the DVD. Um, I'm hesitant with this one because it was the concept of the product, not the product itself. Therefore, it wasn't selling yet. Therefore, it couldn't have Gotta been. Gotta start hot. somewhere, buddy. I understand. I understand. I I used it for the technology was very hot. Oh, it was very hot. Very hot. That <laughs> digital versatile disc, baby. Um That's right. But I look at the next two. I'm going to throw you under the bus for a second, Man Crush, because I know these two aren't watching the chat. And uh, somebody was trash talking you two a lot during uh, <laughs> during your picks. Uh, but he has a point, though. OK, so the music, it's it's a hot album. It's basically the best of Bob Marley without actually being a best of album. Um doesn't get better than that. Full disclosure on me, my first reggae album was the best of Inner Circle. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> when I was... They're going to make you sweat, man. That's actually precisely the reason why I got that album, because we were up at a cottage, and there was like a little like community area, and we were hanging out with the kids, and the, all these kids kept playing that song over and over again. And I ended up getting... It was one of the first four uh, CDs I ever bought. Much like these folks here on YouTube, I've been watching you. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot. <laughs> so a lot of that, but it's it's the music round, but it's also the hot products round. I get that it's a hot product. I go from there, and then I go to Man Crush, and <laughs> Man Crush you wins. Me or you went to the. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm giving I'm giving it to the Playboy not just because of the picture I can't stop staring at, but the <laughs> um, it's an interesting one because again it, it the difficulty finding stuff uh, like this uh, especially in the 70s is tough, but then to find one that had a lot of because it's supposed to be the gentleman's magazine and these interviews and stuff like that and there was a lot of things of cultural importance all kind of going on at the same time all falling into the magazine as well that you know even the more stern businessman might have picked up, you know, and said, I'll tear this cover off so I don't see this woman's breast and I'll pray for her later, but I got to find out what Woodward and Bernstein had to say. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to go with that for my hot product for my win. And that gives Van Crush the victory. 
that that's like what you do. That's like your edging is the, the oh, diversity. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have a great idea because I think they're both their picks were fantastic. They really they're were. just I I didn't necessarily see them fitting with hot products. However, I think it's fair. Let's all go to the wild card round. Throw out a quick wild card. Let Joe pick it and see what happens. Yeah, I do like hearing people's wild cards. All right, guys. So for my wild card, I had another album. <laughs> Believe it or not, and I had to try to slide this one in. I was going to pick it for my music round, but I decided to go with Doves Cry. Doves Cry. So this good. is the debut, the self-titled first album of The Fat Boys. This is The Fat Boys' first album, May 29th, 1984. It, it, you know, it had Jailhouse Rap, Stick 'em Up, Can You Feel It, Fat Boys, The Human Beatbox. You can't go wrong with The Fat Boys. You know, we we lost uh, Prince Marky D not too long ago. Uh, rest in peace. And, you know, I, I was a huge uh, fan of The Fat Boys growing up. So had to go with their, the debut album. That's what I had for a wild card. Drew Zachman, what did you bring for Wildcard? Uh, so for mine, uh, also I did an album, also self-titled album, but it's not known as that. Uh, uh, basically, this album is known by the color of the album, and I, I was torn on this and the other album that I wound up going with, the Beastie Boys, but I feel like I like the Beastie Boys and Ill Communication much more than this album, although this album is fantastic too. But uh, May 10th, 1994, is the greatest hits from uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, but now it's a, uh, it is the blue album from Weezer. Yeah. So that one, uh, I mean, Weezer, I don't know if I need to say much about it. I mean, uh, Say It Ain't So has been streamed over 240 million times on Spotify, Buddy Holly over 186 million times. These guys have over 10 million monthly listeners. I mean, when people talk about albums from the 90s, the, the, the Weezer blue album is usually one of the ones they, they bring up. So. That was my wild card. Awesome. One of the best produced albums I've ever heard, thanks to Rick Ocasek of the Cars. That's right. Great album. Uh, Man Crush, you won this game, but uh, what did you have for the wild card round? All right. Since you guys both came with music, let's go movies. I got um, <laughs> a, group, a, group of kids from, uh, a group of kids in Brooklyn. They form a gang, and from this moment on, they do everything together which makes their life easier, but at the same time, now they face new problems. And it just so happens to be the big screen debut of Sylvester Stallone. And not only that, but Henry Winkler was also in this movie, also his first major role. And he bases Fonzie's performance, or Fonzie's character, off of the performance of Stallone's character, Stanley Roselio. So this is like a double banger. And it's the movie Lords of Flatbush. Wow. Deep cut. <laughs> That's a funny name. <laughs> it's the seventies, bro. <laughs> uh, All right, Joe Finley. I know funny. this wasn't an official round, but if you had to make a ruling on the wild card round, where would you have gone? I mean, look at her. <laughs> <laughs> Does she have a flat bush? <laughs> I kept her covered up, though. Hopefully, nothing slipped. But I think <laughs> if the video version, I will blur it if it if it did. But I think we're OK. Um, it's interesting. I always love this round. Um, obviously, a little bit more when there's some more stakes behind it. But the 
having two music and then having a movies one, uh, we're comparing apples, apples and oranges. Uh, I think I would lean. And again, I think that this actually has a distinct advantage because kind of my coming of age is right around the year that he's talking about. And I would go with uh, with Weezer and Drew in this round only because it's like it is my frame of reference and it's uh where i'm coming up like i know the fat boys and the fat boys are cool but uh and lords of flatbush i've seen but you know kind of like you know if i'm looking for a sylvester stallone thing i'd be looking for more of a breakout than that but all good choices i just lean i i go with my adolescence uh as per that uh you know, that's how it if I came with Kitty and Studs party, <laughs> that would have been more aligned. Maybe tonight. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, so I, I'd go with Drew with this round, but it really doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do us a favor before you guys leave. If you haven't already, here's the annoying pitch to you guys. Hit like drop a, an actual comment or just chat just write some bullshit in the comments just write nelson mandela and, yeah yeah you can write that <laughs> and uh hit subscribe mm-hmm. and we'll do this again in uh two weeks i think we're gonna do it right joe Sounds good you're uh you can't do it next week and we need joe the producer and in two weeks i think that would be krista makes from less than jake sweet well, congratulations again to Man Crush, who pulled out another victory on this one. Uh, but if you've missed an episode, you can always go over to DuelingDecades.com. It is now your one-stop shop for everything on Dueling Decades. We have All the episodes are there, video and audio. You can subscribe to the show on any platform of your choice. So uh, in the meantime, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. See you later. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard.